the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast with your host, Andy Lash. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in offshore industry. We have a wonderful guest on today, Ali Cedeno. Ali, how are you doing? I am good. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. Absolutely. I looked forward to the discussion. I have to say it's probably one of the more you know, difficult podcasts I've, I've thought through on just what to ask, what to talk about, you know, and try not to ask the same stuff. And that partially comes because you have a podcast of your own, right? I do. I have the Women Offshore podcast. I've been running it for a couple years now. Awesome. How has that been going in general? How do you enjoy podcasting? I love it. And I'm trying to do a lot more of it. Initially, I was doing one episode a month because I was also in grad school getting my MBA at Rice University. And it was a lot. I did all my own editing and recording and finding guests, everything. So that adds up and takes a lot of time. And when you're an MBA student and you're struggling as as it happens, and it's just, it's a lot. So for me, I did what I could over the last couple of years. And now I have a little more time on my hands because I've graduated trying to get episodes out as often as I can. And I've really enjoyed it. I think the biggest part for me has been getting some feedback from listeners, hearing from women, especially Maritime Academy students who listen to the podcast, telling me what it means to them and the impact it has had on their lives. Yeah, I wish I'd get some more feedback myself. I've got... (laughs) 26 episodes now and I ask for it every show, you know, good, bad or ugly. Let me know. <laughs> but I get crickets. <laughs> it happens. It does it happen. Happened. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you were, you graduated. You said Rice University. So that's down in Houston, right? That's correct. It's in Houston, Texas. Is that where you are today? Yes, I am. Quarantine Houston. Yeah. <laughs> Quarantine Houston. <laughs> I was gonna say, how have you been doing through the quarantine and everything? I've been okay hanging in there. So my plan was to actually go offshore once I graduated and train as a rig manager for a major drilling contractor. I was so excited for that and realized that when everything was happening with COVID that it would probably not work out exactly as I wanted. And so I've been doing some interning and projects on the side and and really just trying to learn as much as I can during this period about my company. And then hopefully once we have this pandemic under control, I can go offshore and train for a couple of years and the position I was planning on. Wonderful. Now, you've been offshore before. Plenty, right? Like you have quite a career in that field already. What's led you back to school? Yeah, so I graduated from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in 2008. And I remember when I graduated thinking, I never want to go back to school ever again. This has been enough. When you graduate from one of these maritime academies, you also sit for a very, very long exam to get your either 
marine engineers or mates license. So that senior year is very intense and takes a lot out of you. But when you graduate, you go, a lot of people go out offshore. They go work on various types of ships and go see the world. So I worked offshore for 10 years, actually started on cruise ships, did a year on cruise ships, and then wanted to become a dynamic positioning operator where I would use a computer to navigate a vessel and was really excited about learning that and did that for about eight years, some time on dive support vessels as well as drill ships. But I wanted to go back to school eventually, I think because some time had passed (laughs) since my undergrad days and maybe I'd forgotten about some of the struggles that come with being a student. But I really wanted to move my career in a direction where I could make more of an impact, where I would spend some time offshore, some time in the office, get behind some of these policies and try to build an inclusive environment wherever I land. That sounds like an incredible plan. It it also sounds like you're charging ahead right after it. So congrats again on graduating and everything there. One thing I've done many episodes and talked to many people in the industry, but what does it look like to get a degree in maritime or to go to one of these maritime academies? What, what are you really studying and learning through that process? Yeah, so you can go to some of the state maritime academies. So there are state maritime academies in California, in Texas, up in Michigan, over in the Northeast. There's several. There's one in Massachusetts two in New York. I graduated from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, which is the federal one, actually. And then there's SUNY Maritime and Maine Maritime. So several academies that you can go to. For the federal one, the United States Merchant Marine Academy requires an appointment from your congressman or senator. So it is a lot of work on top of a normal application. And for the state academies, you don't have that appointment, but it's still, these are hard schools to get into. You spend a year at sea and it depends on the school you go to. So some schools have their own training ships. Others send you off on commercial vessels or you do a little bit of both. So you're really getting in four years of school in just three years to accommodate that sea time. And I was fortunate when I got on my very first ship as a cadet, I was about 20 years old, and that ship went around the world. So it was a car carrier, got on, I think it was here in Houston, and then we went to Florida, I want to say, and then, this is a while ago, (laughs) and then we went to the Mediterranean, and I remember there was a tropical storm in the Atlantic when we were doing the crossing and I got so, so sick. And I had been a boater my entire life. My dad stuck me in a sailboat when I was six years old and just loved being on the water, but I'd never been on a huge vessel before. And here I was, I couldn't even like do my work. I was just so, so sick. But everyone assured me that once you get past that first time of being really sick, it gets easier. And and for me, it did. And then after we transited the med, we went through the Suez Canal. We stopped at several ports in the Middle East. We then crossed the Indian Ocean and went to Japan. I loved being in Japan. I got a lot of port time in Japan to go see the country. 
stopped in Hawaii in the middle of the night. So that was my only time I've ever been in Hawaii was a few <laughs> hours in the middle of the night. And I just went to Kmart to get some like shampoo because I was out of it by then or almost out. It's expensive shampoo. Too. <laughs> yes. Yes. From there, we went to Mazatlan, Mexico, which again, it was the middle of the night. Didn't get much time there. Did a Panama Canal transit, which was a lot of fun and really interesting seeing that entire operation going through the lakes. Lastly, we came, I think, back to Houston. So it just, oh no, sorry. We did go to Puerto Rico and then Houston. So saw a lot in just about three months. That was my introduction to working on merchant ships. And it was hard, right? Being gone for so long, you're 20 years old and you're out of range of, of talking to family. And the internet was really nothing. It was just email yeah. through the captain. So he would send an email. And my understanding at the time was that he could read it anytime he wanted. And so that just felt odd that we had this one email address for the vessel. So it was a good learning experience. My captain was great. I was with a good crew. And I appreciate that time. Now, granted, I had to get a year's worth of sea time before I graduated. So my other vessels were a little bit harder, was not on very like inclusive vessels, I guess you could <laughs> say. Often the only woman also found it very strange, the dynamic between license and unlicensed. So you have your officers on board. And as a cadet, I was kind of in between both worlds where I would try to learn as much as I could from the licensed and the unlicensed because I had no experience. And I remember there was a woman who came on board and she was unlicensed. And I was just so excited because it was the first time I'd ever seen a woman on a merchant vessel and really wanted to get to know her and find out about her career. I didn't care that she was unlicensed. And the chief officer pulled me aside and told me that as a licensed officer, I should not be speaking with her unless it's work-related. And it just felt so dehumanizing in that moment towards her and then also towards my experience as a woman who wanted to connect with another woman on board and being told that I shouldn't. Yeah, it's like, don't talk to the help, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty bad. It was very bad. Do you think that's improved at all since then or, or still quite a bit of problems there? I think it depends on what sector of the industry you're in. Now, for offshore energy, we don't have that divide. It's more inclusive in that way. But traditional merchant ships, you see that divide a lot where there's a crew mess and an officer mess. Those are the areas where we eat. And so there's there's no mingling. And it's just an old way of thinking. And it's it's outdated, I think. Yeah, great. Especially with everything we got going on in the world right now, right? I can't agree more with you there. You think that the energy sector is, is a little more progressive just because of, you know, the majors are progressive themselves with a lot of the changes that they make both on shoreside roles and just in their their operations in general. Do you think that's what drives that? Yes, I think it also depends. So there are companies out there that are so progressive. They're very inclusive and they're doing everything they can. And then you have companies that don't have those same policies. And then you also have these microcultures that people need to be aware of. So you can have a company where it has great policies, it's very inclusive, but then not all the vessels have that same sort of environment. 
And that's something we talk about every now and then where a woman goes to a company, has a really good time, great experience. She's learning a lot. She's thriving in her career and she moves up. And then talking to uh, another woman who's on a different vessel for that same company, she has a completely different experience. Even though the policies are the same, that disconnect between the office and the vessels exists in some places. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely tough. Not that it's acceptable, but I mean, it's got to be, it happens on land even, right? Where we can actually drive out to a job site or drive to a, a separate terminal or, or you know, a satellite office and, and you can see it. It's so much harder to, to get to these vessels that are moving all around the world, you know, and they kind of, like you said, they just have their own little, their own little world in, on that vessel and little external input makes it through the captain. Probably it probably has to start at the captain and really work down from there. Yes, absolutely. It's so important to have really good leadership on board that is aware and also aware of the blind spots that they might have within their organization structure. The people that matter a lot that I think get overlooked are the officers or, well, really anyone who is in these environments where women, they might be the first person a woman talks to about something that happens. And those people, men, women, you name the gender, they need to understand the next steps. It can't just be taught to the captain or the OIM. We all need to be educated on what it means to be an ally, what it means to be supportive and get people the help they need and just be a really good shipmate. Absolutely. And that kind of brings to mind that I didn't really tell you. I, I know before we did the interview, I told you I reached out to some friends and different people just kind of bouncing ideas. I reached out to some actual previous guests, some female, female guests in the industry, trying to get ideas on maybe what questions they would like to ask, just kind of carrying the topic. And I actually reached out to a friend, a lifelong friend. She lives out in California. She's a life family marriage counselor. Sorry if I butchered that. <laughs> but talk to her about it. And her best advice was, you know, don't ask specifically, you know, why is it hard for a woman offshore? Just why is it hard offshore? Why, what are the things that don't look at it that way? And I, I kind of draw a parallel to that, what she just said, where, you know, if you're going to be reporting to somebody, they're all, already going to have like a kind of a preconceived notion of, of what you're going to be maybe reporting or bringing attention to. And they might quickly discredit those because of those those biases or preconceived notions. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk about our careers in general, the hard stuff at times does come out. And women offshore, you know, we are more than a podcast. We're also a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We have a mentoring program. And there at the mentoring program specifically, we provide resources around sexual assault, sexual harassment, and we let the ladies know that we're there for them. But we're here to talk about our careers in general and see what comes up because it is it's hard for everyone out there, regardless of, of gender. When you're, you're gone for weeks, months at a time, especially right now with COVID, with everything that's happening around protests and rioting and racial tensions. And it's hard to be away talking with some of these ladies more than ever because there's obviously nothing you can do when you're offshore and you really feel for your family and your friends 
watching the news, hearing from them about everything that's happening. Yeah, being on that vessel, depending on what your personal situation and experience is, I mean, it could range from, you know, a trip around the world to see all kinds of interesting ports and locations, like you kind of mentioned that that kind of caught your heart from the beginning, traveling the world, to almost the opposite spectrum, where it, it seemed like almost a prison if every bit of your communications goes through a captain and they can read everything you write. And many of those things probably still, to some degree, happen today. You just locked on that vessel in a horrible situation for quite some time. Yeah. Hopefully not so. Yeah. And I read an article last night about a Filipino woman who committed suicide on her vessel because she's not able to go home. And I don't know how long she's been out there, but there are a lot of people who are crew changing or are need to crew change through these international ports and they can't they can't go home and they're just stuck out there. I can't imagine how tough that is especially if you're not in an inclusive environment where maybe you aren't supported and understood and you're stuck with people who you really want to get away from, maybe you're being harassed. There are situations out there that I am very afraid for the women that I know. And again, at Women Offshore, we provide as much support as we can through our resources to help them get through this really hard time. And through all that, right, like that's the driver for you to kind of found and and run the Women Offshore Foundation and offer this support to women in the industry. And as kind of frustrating and upsetting all of that is to hear I mean, you're still a big proponent of the industry, right? Oh, absolutely. I love my industry. I loved working offshore. And I don't want to make it seem like doom and gloom or that we're all victims because we're definitely not. And I started it because I wanted to connect with other women and, and meet these amazing individuals who champion diversity and just love their careers as much as I do. And it really started out of something that was very positive, where in 2015, I was working on a ship where there were several women. And this is my first time on a drill ship where I was working with a woman on the bridge and working with a woman who was in the the engineering department. And as we did our PMs and preventive maintenance and we did our jobs, it was just really nice to know that I was no longer this anomaly walking down the deck. There was another woman who was going to be right behind me. And and the guys, they didn't seem to care as much. To me, it was an inclusive environment and I thrived. I did so well that I was promoted. And with that promotion, I was sent to South Korea. In South Korea, I was working in a shipyard, working 12-hour days. And I enjoyed working with the guys there. A lot of them I had worked with for much of my career. But I missed that camaraderie that I had found on my previous vessel with those women. And I was connecting with them almost every day online. And I thought that maybe this is this is how it should be, where you feel accepted and you do thrive in the environment that you work in. And maybe the industry won't change as quickly as I want it to, but I could provide something online where women could connect and share their stories And these ladies who had mentored me on my last vessel, they could be the first role models. So I reached out to them saying, you know, I want to start this nonprofit, but I really have no idea how to start a nonprofit. Let's put a blog together and see what happens. So 
womenoffshore.org was started in 2017 as a blog site. We had a lot of content at the time. I spent several months putting content together, asking people to help, and everyone said yes, giving me all sorts of great photos and sea stories. Before long, we had, I think, over 20 pages of content, launched it, and have continued to add to it. And and now here we are three years later as a 501c3 nonprofit, and I couldn't be prouder of what the organization has turned into, the women within our network really just accelerating their careers at sea, achieving some amazing new heights in their own careers, and then bringing the other women with them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And kudos to you. It is awesome achievements that you've made. And when I first started this journey as a host on the podcast, and you know, I I won this spot from a LinkedIn contest, right? So I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a fan of the show, of the other shows on the OGGN. And they had a contest for the host job and I won. So I have no experience offshore. My only experience offshore is on cruise ships, but I was a guest <laughs> on those cruise ships. <laughs> except yeah, for except a little for different. <laughs> yeah. I used to be in a performing, it was a dance company. It was just it was a performance dance company. And we actually performed on on a cruise ship one time. So I guess I can say I worked on a cruise ship <laughs> for a week, but that's great. Nowhere near like you have. Why should and I hear your passion and your love for the industry. I'm sure there's many things that drive that, but why should somebody look into this industry themselves? Why should somebody look to maritime as a career path? You know, maybe we have some somebody coming out of high school or something and they're looking which way they want to go. There are so many reasons to go to sea. First, it's an adventure, right? You get to go see the world. You can work on all different kinds of vessels. I chose the mate route where I was a deck officer and I love navigating. I love having that vessel just literally in my hands and deciding where it's going to go next. And it's a way to see the world, but also get a lot of time off. So (laughs) a lot of mariners only work half the year and you can kind of choose your schedule based on the type of vessel you want to work on. So if you like oil and gas and you want to work offshore, say in the Gulf of Mexico, those schedules are three weeks on, three weeks off generally. Right now, I think a lot of vessels are four weeks on, four weeks off, but you're only gone for a month at a time. And it's a way to balance your life pretty easily for people who don't mind being gone longer and really want to go to remote parts of the world. You can go work on expeditionary cruise ships, which was what I did originally, where I went to Antarctica and the Seychelles and really, really incredible places. I loved being on that ship so much that I asked to stay longer when we were down in Antarctica. I didn't want to leave. Ice navigation to me was not something I learned in school. And it was something that I was I was learning as I did it. The captain taught me a lot, especially on our transit down to Antarctica. And it was a great experience seeing all the wildlife down there. I didn't realize how much actually happens in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. You also make a really good living. The money is good. And it depends on the organization you get in with. And generally speaking, the types of vessels tend to pay a little differently. 
but you can have a very, very great just career to support a family depending on what you want. But yeah, there's a lot of reasons to go to see and and not everyone does it for forever. Talking to people who are graduating from maritime academies, they say, okay, well, I'm going to try this for a few years. And yeah, go try it for a few years. Get your feet wet. Give it a chance. You may realize, hey, I want to stay out here even longer. Or you'll take that experience and go to graduate school. Or you'll go work in an office somewhere. And having that experience at sea is is really important if you work in an office because you're going to understand the operations so much better. You're going to know what your mariners are going through. So when you do set policy, you'll have a better idea of how that's going to affect them. So, I mean, I could talk all day about why someone (laughs) should go to sea. But yeah, going to the maritime academies is an option. You don't have to. There are schools where you can go get the minimum credentials and then get on a ship. So it's a really interesting career to have. And if anyone's listening and is considering it, please do. And and feel free to reach out at womenoffshore.org, even if you're a guy. I don't care what gender you are. If you want to go to sea, reach out and we can talk. Wonderful. You kind of touched on it, but do most careers in offshore, of course, they're going to start offshore, but do you think most most people are planning to stay offshore for most of their career? Or do a lot of people have like an end goal of some kind of shoreside position? Yeah, it depends. I think most of the people I talk with say something about how, oh, I was only going to do this for a few years and 10 years later, I'm still out here. (laughs) But then I interview people and and talk to people within our network who say, you know, this is what I wanted to do. Or there's also the person who went to sea, went to the office for a few years and said, I need to go back to sea. And you rarely hear those stories, but they are out there too. Or they went to sea and then came back and had to go back to school. To then go back to sea, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are the standout traits that can maybe propel somebody forward in the maritime industry? Is there some, you know, aptitude or technical skill that that people tend to succeed more with? I wouldn't say that there's a single skill. I think it's a mindset. It's about being open to learning and learning things that can be quite difficult to learn the first time. So I think it's important that you're just there to learn from everyone from the get-go, even the people who maybe have sailed in a lower level position for a long time and, and that's what they want. That person has a lot of experience. And even though you might have a license or a credential that's going to put you above them, there's no reason to not learn from them. And in the end, you'll find that these people are, a lot of them will, will teach you. So I think it's more of a mindset of being open to learning from everyone that matters. No, that, that's good. I didn't think about that as a response, but that's a good way to look at it, I'm sure. I mean, and you touched on it earlier, right? It seems like every trip is an adventure. You have so many things that can dramatically change that, you know, job or that hitch on on the vessel that, you know, the weather or equipment. I mean, you're really relying on a lot of different factors to come together to make that job a success. And if they don't, you got to learn a lot real fast, don't you? Absolutely. And you have to be so dependent on each other. That's just the nature of the environment you're in. There's no fire department or 
I mean, the Coast Guard's there, but it can take a while sometimes depending on where you are in the world. And so it's just you and your crew, you're your lifelines. And so being close with them, drilling with them every week for emergencies, getting to know people so you can rely on them, it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Which part of the industry is usually the biggest challenge for new mariners? That's a good question. You stumped (laughs) me on that one. (laughs) I was thinking it's the time away from home, but that was just my my non-experienced assumption, right? Yeah, the factor of being gone, and I think that probably affects everyone about the same. Throughout my career, I would meet these guys who told me that they couldn't wait to get away from their family and come to work. And I know part of it was a joke, but for some people, I thought maybe they were a little serious about that. I manage truck drivers, and there's many that are the same way. They they live in that truck, and they can't wait to get back in that truck sometimes. Yeah. So I think for most people, just being gone, and especially like we talked about earlier, being gone during times of crisis is especially hard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you can really be secluded off there and just watching the world from afar. Mm-hmm. Do you have any really standout offshore stories or experiences? You know, any stories you like to tell people from all of your adventures? Yeah, I have lots of stories. Let me see, where should I even start? So <laughs> we can go back to 2009 and I was working on one of the cruise ships that I mentioned earlier in the Seychelles. I was the navigation officer as the third mate, which is a little different in the U.S. On U.S. flagships, normally your navigation officer is the second mate. But they said, because I was pretty new out of school, I could do all the navigation work. And they wanted the second officer to be in charge of safety. So working with the captain, we were aware of lots of pirate attacks over there off the coast of Somalia and wanted to make sure, of course, the vessel was safe. So we dropped off all of our passengers, our guests in a port and decided to go on without any guests on board. We blacked out the vessel completely. So we covered all of our windows with with cardboard and, and black, black painted cardboard, I believe. And we turned all the lights off. So when we navigated at night. We didn't have any lights on. We just used our radar and knew that we were far enough offshore that any vessel out there would most likely have a radar to see us as well. We covered the sides of the ship with glass, but that was because there was grease, so grease and glass, and tried to make it so that if there were any openings in the vessel, no one would be able to get inside. I was working from midnight to four in the morning, and then noon to four in the afternoon. We had armed guardsmen on the bridge as well as stationed throughout the vessel as lookouts. They had weapons on board, but they had rubber bullets. So we were going up north, and we gave them our rubber bullets that we would have used just for protection from polar bears as a last resort if anything were to possibly happen with a polar bear. And I remember feeling very, very nervous. The Captain Phillips incident with the Marist Alabama had happened around the same 
time as this. So people who've seen that movie understand a little bit of what we were expecting. And to this day, I can't watch that movie. I even met Captain Phillips and I think I told him I I can't watch your movie. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's too close to home. Didn't sleep much those days that we were transiting up to the Gulf of Aden. We rounded the corner into the Gulf of Aden and I was coming on watch at that time and there was just complete chaos on the radio. This was at noon. So it was my afternoon watch in daylight. And we saw, well, we heard that a ship nearby was being hijacked by pirates. So they were within 24 miles. And I believe it was the Yemenese Coast Guard who stepped in to try to save them. Unfortunately, my understanding is some of the crew was killed in that process, but they were able to stop the hijacking. We didn't see any pirates come near us until we got about halfway through the Gulf of Aden. There was a small boat and it was coming right near us. I was talking to the armed guardsmen on the bridge with me about it and I was trying to steer away from it so it would not attack us. I was relying on the training from all the drills with my crew. The boat continued to turn near us. The armed guardsman wanted me to call the captain, and I actually told him no, that I wasn't going to call the captain. And he was really mad at me and didn't understand why. And the reason why is because all the training that we had gone through the last week or so, I had learned that if you are going over 15 knots and you're in a rough sea, that the pirates will most likely not attack you. And I, I didn't really think this was a pirate that we were looking at. It was going very, very slow. Whereas everything that we learned told us that if it was a pirate, it would be going fast right, right towards us. And this vessel was barely making way. And we were also on the west side almost of the Gulf of Aden, where most likely we wouldn't see pirates. So all this knowledge that I had accumulated, thanks to partly due to this this guy's training who I was speaking with, told me that this was not a threat and that if we just kept on course and, and trying to steer around him as well, we would be fine. And so the guy was so insistent that I did call the captain and the captain who wasn't even on the bridge at the time. So that gives you an idea that he he thought we were okay too. Uh, he did come up and I remember they were arguing on one side of the bridge, just arguing over whether to sound the general alarm, get everyone down into what we called the citadel, which was a safe area of the vessel for the crew to muster in. And I looked over to the vessel, I had some binoculars, looked over to that vessel that it steered around, and it was a family. They were out fishing. They even held up their fish and waved at us. So <laughs> that that was it. And uh, we continued on and went into the Red Sea. And I was proud of my ship and the crew for for everything that they had done over the last week to ensure that we, you know, we worked together. And it was very stressful, though, that anticipation, that that worry that we were going to get hijacked. The crew 
even if it was just someone who was in charge of cleaning the cabins, wanted to be involved. And I really appreciated seeing that. And everyone was volunteering to be lookouts and be part of the process to ensure we were safe. Yeah, that's an adventure for sure, right? Like it's, a, you know, you're, you're looking at life-threatening possibilities and still navigating and keeping on course and working through that. So that's intense. I mean, that's that's not for everybody. But to some people, that's exactly what they're they're looking for and missing in their life, right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'd rather not go through that again. <laughs> well, well, some people, some people, you know, they're they're trying to find that excitement, right? They're, I mean, they're they're trying to find those things. Not that it's smart, <laughs> right? But it sounds like there's a lot of options within maritime for many people, no matter what you're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and I just. I love that as mariners, we are united by the sea. And when we talk at Women Offshore about who we are and who do we represent, we look at it less as offshore energy, really just off land. When you work on a ship and you spend days or weeks away from home and you talk to other people who don't have those experiences, a lot of them, they don't quite get what you've been through. And and I can't blame anyone for, for not getting it. But those of us who have done it, we have a, an incredible bond that we should be proud of for these experiences and help each other with our careers. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, that's fantastic. And you're doing amazing work. You're charging ahead for your own career. And it looks like you're bringing along a lot of people with you that are they're also on the upward climb for, with everything you're doing. So again, kudos to you. I'm sure there's many people that appreciate the work that you're doing through the foundation and and just bringing you know some of these issues to light and and just helping advance the maritime field. Thanks. Yeah, I'd love it. It's been quite the experience so far and women offshore is still so young. We're only about 3 years old and I can't wait to see what happens in another year and where we might be in another 10 years. Awesome. Anything that you wanted to talk about that we we haven't touched on? I mean, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I had a real corny pirate joke that I I heard. I was thinking about. Oh yeah. When you were telling your story, but (laughs) I think we're good on that. (laughs) Yeah, I hope the story was okay because I realized like the ending is nothing like huge. It's like, oh yeah, they're just holding a fish. (laughs) No, I mean, but that's. I mean, but you don't know, right? Like, I think that the ending doesn't make the beginning part and everything that you guys went through any any less stressful, right? Like, you guys were still on the same level of anticipation and on guard regardless, right? I'm glad it was just a fish and a family fishing, but it very likely could have been, you know, pirates or something, you know. Right. Yeah, else. it could have been. The environment that day, I'll never forget, just... It was really windy and wavy, and we had the wind with us, so that's why we were going over 15 knots. I think we were hitting like 16.5, which was really fast for us. And so, yeah, we had a lot going for us, even if we did see someone, but possibly with that attack earlier, that had maybe like the only pirates in the area had been wrapped up in that. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But yeah, it was it was terrifying. It was a very long four hours of watch. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I have not experienced anything like that myself. So 
I can only imagine <laughs> how stressful that would be. So yeah. Well, awesome. I have really enjoyed the conversation. I've really enjoyed hearing about everything that you're doing within the industry and of course with women offshore. And hopefully we get some some future mariners that might find this and, and listen to it. And thanks. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, the show is sponsored by Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry. With over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. If you are interested in support for your maritime operations, you can learn more about Tidewater through their website at www.tdw.com. As always, I welcome any and all feedback. Wherever you may have received this content, please, if you can leave a like or a comment, Tell us what you think, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. All of that will help this show make improvements as we continue to move forward. Thank you for listening. And these are the events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.